Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to look at Isaiah 53 and Matthew 8 today. The title of the message is, There is Healing at the Table. And this is going to be more of a teaching today. Uh, than a preaching. I want, you know, there's times where we preach because there's maybe an impartation or, uh, you know, something that we want to hit the heart so that there could be some sort of change and response unto the Lord. And then there's moments for us to teach so that you can actually apply that which you're learning in your everyday life. And so I want to teach today out of Isaiah 53, Matthew 8. Um, and two things, two main ideas I'm trying to get across is just as there is forgiveness of our sins at the, uh, in the atonement, I believe there's also healing in the atonement and that there's healing at the table of the Lord. Uh, the body and the blood of Jesus contains the t- atonement of our sins and the healing of our bodies and the deliverance from if- infirmities. That the spilling of his blood removes the effects of sin from the repentant sinner and allows the sinner to be reconciled to God. And we become the righteousness of God by his blood, and sinners become saints. That breaking, at, the, at the breaking of his body, it removes the effects of the enemy and the results of sin, allowing the believer to receive healing paid for by the scourging of Jesus' back. His body broken is his flesh broken for us. And so this is a synopsis. If you take anything from the message, you can just grab a hold of what I just said. That's pretty much what we're going to look at and what we're going to dive into in the scripture. And the reason why this has been on my heart, you know, um, for the past two years, or a little over two years, I've been taking communion, communion at least weekly. And as I've begun to look in the scriptures at the different verses and just the seeing of the connecting point of the blood and the body of Jesus to the table of the Lord, and what is that representing? His last supper moment when he's describing to them about the bread and about the wine, how it is his body that would be broken, his blood that would be shed. He was pointing them to uh, his journey to Calvary and his, his dying on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. And so these are all connected. These storylines are connected. These verses are connected and they have meaning for us. And I want to dive into that today. Uh, maybe one definition that some of you may not know, I think you've probably heard the word atonement, but maybe you've not uh, you know, heard a definition or you're asking the question, what, you know, what do you mean by atonement? So as used in the scriptures, to atone is to suffer the penalty for sins, thereby removing the effects of sin from the repentant sinner and allowing him or her to be reconciled to God. And Jesus Christ was the only one capable of carrying out atonement for all mankind, and he carried out the atonement as he took up his cross from his sentencing to his final breath. In a short way, that helps me remember, okay, atonement, what, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? It's a repaying of debt, and it's a purification. When he came and his body was broken, his, his, his blood was shed, what he did was he paid off your debt even before it happened, and he purified you so that when the father looks at you, he looks through the lens of his son. And that's why by his body, by his blood, we can come boldly through the throne of grace. It's not because of anything we've earned or any good works that we've done, but it's because of his blood that has been applied to our lives when we repent, 
when we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we repent, we turn to him, we, we let our old man die, we're baptized, we were raised with him, we're seated in heavenly places with him, all through his body, all through his blood. It's his blood that gives us access. And so this is, this is uh, the beauty of Jesus in coming and saving us. All right, if you're in Isaiah 53, if you can look at verse 4 with me, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible, NASB. Whatever version you have is fine, but if you could uh, look along with me, then they're going to put it on the screen. Surely, verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities. The, chast- uh, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And so Isaiah 53, I believe God, we see this picture, or really these words being prophesied through the prophet Isaiah from the Father, describing prophetically that Jesus was going to suffer not only for our sins, but also for our sicknesses, our iniquities, that he bore our sins, but he also bore our sicknesses on the way to the cross. It is showing and it's declaring that he would be, and he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And you may have heard this phrase or this version, by his stripes, we are healed. And so this is... uh, like I said, it's the prophecy coming from Isaiah, but from the Father. And in Matthew, when Matthew's writing his version of the Gospels, and he's beginning to tell the stories of Jesus' miracles and healings and deliverances in Matthew 8, he begins to quote the Isaiah passage. And this is important because it's not, this may not be words in red, but, but Matthew is now connecting what Jesus was doing to biblical prophecy. And so he says in chapter 8, verse 16, When evening came, they brought to him, to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So he's making this connection, this reference to the prophecy of Isaiah. And that's declaring that deliverance and healing for the sick by Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Basically saying what, what you're watching, what you're reading, reader, saying, speaking to the reader, speaking to us, as you're reading this, what you're reading, what you're reading about, these actions that Jesus was just doing, the healings, the deliverances, this is prophecy fulfilled. And it's connecting uh, Jesus's life to the prophecy of Isaiah. And specifically, he's highlighting to us the scourging of his back, the bearing of sickness, the bearing of infirmity upon Jesus's body, upon his flesh. And when we also look at Peter, right? First Peter, when he's writing his first epistle, he is quoting also from Isaiah. In first Peter two, verse 24, it says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to, the, uh, to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. By his wounds, you were healed. So Isaiah is saying, by his stripes, you're healed. But Peter is looking back. Peter is looking back, and he's speaking, writing an epistle to the church, and he's saying, you know, Isaiah said, by his stripes, you are healed. But here I am letting you know, you were healed. And even to us, 2,000 years later, as we're reading that, this is the connecting point, as we're seeing in First Peter, you were healed. And so for whatever reason, we're going to connect this to the communion in, uh, in a moment, 
at the table of the Lord, there is this reality of you are healed and you were healed and you're being healed, okay? So we're gonna look, we're gonna look through this. Um, now, a little bit about, about scourging. We know that before Jesus was taken to the cross, that Pilate gave him over to the, to the soldiers, to the Roman guard to, to scourge him. Uh, and when they were doing that, basically what that was is it was an interrogation technique that the Roman uh, officials would use for criminals. And that what they would do is they would take these guys and they would tie them to a whipping post. They would tie them down. And then they would take this cat of nine tails, this whip with you know, uh, metal and glass uh, attached to the end of the whip, multiple whips, uh, multiple pieces to the whip. They would take the whip and they would split it at the end so it wasn't just one whip. Was, and it had, like, like I said, like a cat of nine tails, this glass, this metal. And it, when they whipped the person during the interrogation, it would go into the flesh and then they would pull it out. And they would do this in the hopes and they saw effect. That's why they did it over and over again, that these guys would confess whatever it was that they were being convicted of. Now, it was so intense. This was such an intense whipping that many people who may confess that, yeah, I did this thing and then would then be sentenced to maybe go up on a cross and to die on a cross, they wouldn't even make it to that. They would die right there on the whipping post. That's how intense of a beating and a whipping this was. And in fact, uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 22, he was actually uh, sent to be interrogated. And in his wisdom, as he's being tied to the post, he looks at the guard and says, are you really going to whip someone who is Roman? And he's like, you're Roman? And he goes to the judge, hey, you sent me to, to whip a Roman? And he goes to Paul, oh, are you Roman? He's like, you bet I am, right? Like, <laughs> yes, I'm Roman. Do not whip me with this thing. So, but, so Paul actually gets out of it. They hand him over to, to the Jewish council, and, and that's a whole other story. But we know Jesus was scourged for us. Jesus was sent to the whipping post. In fact, they, they, what we need to see and what we're going to realize is it wasn't just the desire of the Romans or even the Jews to have him be whipped and beaten in this way or to have him be crucified. But this was part of God's plan for his son, for you. And we're going to see this in a moment. And so... Jesus is scourged. Again, this is by design. And how do we know that? When we're looking at the, the scripture in Isaiah and we're reading the prophecy and we're saying that he's going to be bruised for your transgressions, that he's going to be whipped, essentially, and by his stripes we are healed we see this prophecy coming from Isaiah that it was by God's design that he would send Jesus to be scourged. It shows that it was part of God's plan. And why is this important? Because then it invites us to ask the question, would God allow his son to suffer needlessly? Would God allow his son to, to suffer needlessly? He would not. If there wasn't meant to be some sort of power, some sort of promise that would come out of that, he would not have sent his son to be scourged. He would not have sent his son to the cross. But because God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He knew this is the way for salvation, but he also sent him to the whipping post, not just for your salvation, but for your healing for, and for your deliverance so that you could be set free. 
And as I said, this, this type of torture, people would end up dying. And as I've been reading through this and studying this, I've allowed, you know, I've allowed myself, let me enter into this moment. And it is gory, it is intense, but this is reality. By the time he was done being whipped, it's like his back was turned into like, like ground beef, like hamburger meat. Like this is the reality. His skin was ripped open, his flesh. This is the type. I mean, it's intense. I, 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 I don't love blood to begin with, like open wounds and things like that. But I'm just like, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you did that. But why did he do it? Why? Not just to the cross, but to the whipping post. Why? And you have to understand that if, if they didn't tie him down, he would have held on to the post because this was the plan of the father. And he was going to do what the father told him to do. So they didn't need to tie him down and they didn't need to nail him to the cross. He would have done that himself because he came to do that for you because the father sent them to do that to you. And in entering into that moment, we have to understand that this was for purpose. He didn't send Jesus needlessly to suffer. There was purpose, there was victory, and there was promise at the cross, and there was purpose, and there was promise, and there was victory even at the whipping post. And we see that through the prophet Isaiah where he says he was sent to the whipping post. His stripes borne on his back were for what? They were for your healing. They were for your deliverance. I want to take it one step further. When we see Jesus in the Passover meal and he takes the bread and he breaks it, he tells them, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my body which is broken for you. And then again, he takes the cup and he says, this is my cup. And the, the cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the remissions of your sin. And he's telling them this because he's about, he knows what's about to happen. So for us, and this is an important point for us as well, I think many of us, we have understanding, we have experience when we talk about the remission of our sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, we, we do understand that through his blood, we have atonement, and it's made, that the atonement of Christ is made for our sins, and that price is paid once and for all, and it's paid in full. And it would probably be a little over 200 years ago, we have the, the Methodist movement, right? Before the Methodists came into play, a majority of the church, in regards to salvation— you know, we call on the name of the Lord, we've repented, we've turned to the Lord. But in regards to our salvation, there, there wasn't a, an understanding of, am I really saved? Like, secure, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. There was a question, like, I think I'm saved, I hope I'm saved, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out when I get there. But what the Methodists started to do is they started to go through the scripture and create methods of theology, methods of doctrine, and started to open up and saying, okay, if you've repented, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you're obedient to the commands of what he's saying, uh, what, what he's called us to do, then you can be confident in your salvation. And so in the past 200 years as a church body, we've become confident in our salvation, meaning we know that we're not perfect, we're gonna make mistakes, but if we keep coming back to Jesus, if we keep uh, living out in, the, in obedience and in the fear of the Lord, even in our weakness, he's gonna be made strong and we can be secure and that our name is written in the book of life. And when we die, we know we have a security in eternity and in our salvation. And that was purchased and won and understood through the atonement and through the body and the blood of Jesus. So we get that. But what about the bread? What about his body broken for us? We understand that that salvation was won at the spilling of his blood. But what about his body broken? 
And I think one other thing to, to remember when we're talking about the broken body, we're not talking about broken bones. Because none of his bones were broken. When they go to, uh, you know, break the bones, and they did, of the other two guys on the cross so that they would die and, and they can make this quicker, they go to Jesus and they found that he was already dead. And so instead of breaking his bones, which would then fulfill the prophecy, which we saw in John 19, that not a bone in his body would be broken, not a bone would be broken. Instead of breaking the bones, since he was already dead, they just pierced his side. And then out of his side would flow blood and flow water. And that was also to fulfill prophecy. So when he's talking about the broken body, he's not referring to his bones. He's referring to his flesh that was torn open for you. And the other thing to realize, in order to be a perfect sacrifice, since Jesus was the Passover sacrifice, you could not offer a sacrifice to God that had any broken bones to begin with. And so we know that when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, he's referring to the scourging. He's referring to the whipping. He's referring to his body that was torn open on the whipping post. So back to Isaiah, by whose stripes you're healed, it would seem that when he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, he's making reference to the scourging. And again, God would not allow his son needless suffering. There had to be a value, a spiritual value in the scourging of Jesus. Otherwise, God would never allow it. And could it be that the value in the scourging of his son is indeed for the healing of his people? Could it be that when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church concerning their abuses in many areas, that one of them uh, while they were taking, was in regards to while they were taking the Lord's Supper. He was referring to them and rebuking them on, on many different things and bringing correction, but one of the corrections was on their approach to the body and the blood, to the bread and to the wine. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 11, where it begins to give them instruction and correction. And he actually says in, in verse 30, it's this reason or this cause that many are weak and sick among you, and many have actually died because they did not discern the body of Jesus rightly. They were approaching the body and the blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner. And Paul, this was the mercy of the Lord, actually, that Paul's bringing in the correction, that he wouldn't just leave them in that approach, but he was bringing them wisdom. And we're going to look uh, at some of that now. And the inference here is that perhaps Paul was saying to them that they could be healed and they wouldn't have uh, a life that ended prematurely, that they could enter into that if they only knew that by his stripes, they were healed. And now I know some, some Bible commentators, they might say, well, that's referring to spiritual healing or spiritual uh, deliverance of the heart, of the mind. And though I do believe that that is in there, I don't think that is comprehensive enough. It, it probably is there too, but it's not a full answer to the solution of the body and the blood of Jesus. I do believe that, that through the scourging of Jesus, there is availability of healing for us. And I think that we need to discern the Lord's body broken for us, and we need to enter into that promise, by his stripes, you're healed. And so how do we respond then? We respond by continuing to pray for the sick. We respond by continuing to ask the Lord and to receive uh, prayer for healing, even for ourselves. And we will rejoice as the result of our prayers, of our going before the Lord when we see healings take place. But also, we won't change the subject even when we see healings not taking place. I believe that if we understand the Lord's body, that many more would be healed and that his bearing on his body, our sicknesses and infirmities, will see many more 
delivered. I think if we approach this subject in the same confidence as we approach salvation, right? We're all asking the question, or maybe we have asked the question, or we've had the worry, I want to make sure I'm saved. What do I need to do to be saved? And we get a mom or a dad or a pastor or a mentor, they'll take us through the scriptures, take us through the process and say, hey, you can have confidence today in your salvation because it's by his blood, not by your works. In the same way that we pursue with passion the confidence unto salvation, there is an invitation. That's why he was speaking to him in the Corinthians 11. You need to approach his body. You need to discern his body, the bread, in a right manner. And if you do this, in the same way you can have confidence in your salvation, there is a confidence that we can have in the, the will and the desire of the Lord to heal and to deliver, okay? Um, can I read you, when I was doing this study, there was three, three guys that I was looking at. I was reading um, Dr. Michael Brown's uh, book. It's called the, the Israel's Divine Healer. I was going through Randy Clark's book on healing and the atonement, and then I was also looking through Chuck Smith's, um, he's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, his commentary on Isaiah and on Matthew 8. So none of you wrote that down. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> but those are the three, if you wanted to look into this a little bit more, those are the three areas where I begin to study and learn as well as the scriptures. Um, but those were really great resources for me. And so I want to actually read a portion of Dr. Uh, Brown's book, if that's okay. Does that work? Good. I was going to do it anyway. So, okay. So some say healing is not in the atonement. Others say it's through the atonement, but not in the atonement. And other theologians say it's in the atonement exactly the same way that forgiveness of sin is in the atonement. At the cross, there is no question that when Jesus dies and pays for our sin, that out of that, everything we need for life and godliness was paid for. And in that sense, there is healing in the atonement. Because healing is part of God's restoration, I would look at it and say that healing has been made available to us through the cross, and it's fully available. In other words, I don't have to say, God, is it your will to heal? Or, you know, God, my brother is really, really sick, and the doctors say he's not going to live. Lord, is it your will to heal him? My confidence is in this. It is his desire. It is his revealed will, and it has been paid for at the cross. In that sense, healing is in the atonement. And this is important. In regards to healing, it is important to have a sense of what God's will is to begin with. If we do not sense that it is God's will to heal us in our situation, then we cannot pray the prayer of faith. We will always be in doubt if we are not sure what God's will is. And if our theology is weak about God's will, then we will see a lack of healing wherever there is doubt and unbelief. And, and he begins to deal with the issue of the quotations of Isaiah 53 and Matthew 8. And it says, when, in Matthew 8, when Jesus healed the sick, it was fulfilling what was written in Isaiah 53. He carried our sicknesses. So the way you find it, and then he begins to give like another viewpoint from um, MacArthur's study Bible, which he defends it, he likes it, but he's just pointing out one of the viewpoints. Um, it would say in the, common, the commentation section in the MacArthur study Bible about this verse, that during his earthly ministry, he carried our sicknesses on the cross. He died for his sins. They're two separate things. So that carrying our sickness is not part of the cross or the atonement. But the problem with that claim is Isaiah 53. The whole context is, is when he is dying on the cross, that's when he was carrying our sickness and pains and diseases and sins on the cross. So Matthew is telling us the whole ministry of Jesus right up to the cross is taking on his own shoulders our sicknesses, our pain, until he dies on the cross for our sins. Look at it like this. 
And then he translates the Hebrew. I'll do my best. He says, Habura it Rafa, or at the cost of his wounds, there is healing for us. And that includes physical healings. So I would go to God as if it was a promise. I wouldn't just put it all on me in a stress way. I look at it as an incredible opportunity, a promise that's available. And he goes on to say more, but one of the things that I appreciate about is he's basically saying this, just as the forgiveness of sins is available in the atonement, in the body and blood of Jesus. And so we have full access to the perfect forgiveness of our sins and then full access to live perfectly, be perfect as I am perfect. But though we've fully received his blood and we have full access to that, to the, the blood that was shed for our salvation and the atonement, well, we don't walk out every day perfectly. We don't walk out every day perfectly. We still stumble. We serve a God who calls himself the one who is able to keep us from stumbling because he knows he has a people who stumble. But yet, the fullness of the promise exists in the atonement, and it was given to you. And even though the fullness of the promise exists in the atonement, we don't live perfect lives. So thank God for the, his grace and his mercy and his blood that we can continue to come back to the table of the Lord, back to the blood, and apply it to our lives and say, God, I messed up. Forgive me. Forgive me. Help me. I don't even want to do the thing that I'm doing. Help me. Help me. And so we have wrestled with that, and we have settled the fact that, hey, we're going to live this life not perfect, but we are going, to, we're going to, to enter into his blood and understand that when he looks at me, when the father looks at me, he's looking through the lens of his son, and he's seeing me through his son. Ephesians tells us that we, he's put us in Christ, or he's wrapped Christ around us. So when he looks at you, he sees you in Christ. And we have uh, agreement and understanding in regards to salvation, but in the same way, healing is in the atonement, but yet because of pastoral issue, meaning you know we pray for people or we've received prayer and they don't get uh, made well and they we don't see healing all the time, then we start to make a theology based on what isn't happening instead of continuing to create theology based on the word of God. And when we see, we have settled, and thank you Methodists 200 years ago, we've settled the confidence of the blood of Jesus in the atonement but now we need to settle the confidence of the healing and the deliverance of Jesus that's in the atonement, that even though we don't see perfect healing and we don't see perfect deliverance in our everyday walk, and there are people who may die from diseases and die from sicknesses, and we don't understand or have the answers why, in the same way where you don't understand or have the answers why, why do I keep sinning and I don't want to do it? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principality. Healing is the same battle many times, and yet we settle for less because of the lack of our experience instead of putting our faith in the word of God. This entering into salvation through the blood of God, you do it by faith. None of us actually saw with our physical eyes the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ. We read the word of God, and by faith we believe. And by faith we believe that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have to believe it by faith, and it's his grace. Uh, in fact, even before you were saved, it was his grace leading you to your conversion in the first place. And then after you've been converted, it was his grace that came and released the indwelling spirit and the moment of your salvation that turned you into a new person. I don't know if you know that. Your salvation is more than a prayer. It's a supernatural experience. You became a new person in the moment of your salvation. There was a spiritual reality to it. So in the same way, there is a spiritual reality to healing that we need to pursue and to settle and to have confidence. We're not 
going to create beliefs and doctrines based on doubt and unbelief because of lack of what we experience. We're going to lean on the word and understand if by faith I'm saved, then by faith I'm healed. It's in the same atonement. It's in the same verses. We cannot create theology or base our beliefs on what isn't happening, but rather on what the word of God says. And the death of Jesus on the cross provides the basis for our faith and our healing. And again, when we're looking at Corinthians, Paul uh, is talking about approaching the table of the Lord, remember, in the unworthy manner, not discerning the body. And some, some theologians would say they're not discerning you know, the church rightly. And, and that, would, that would look true. There was uh, issues going on in their local church, their local body, and he was addressing the way that they were not waiting, excuse me, not waiting for one another, not preferring one another. So yeah, there is a concept of he's addressing the body as in the body of Christ. But there's most certainly uh, application of they're not dis discerning rightly the body and the blood of Jesus. And we know in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And we also need to understand and remember that Jesus was the Passover lamb. He was the perfect lamb. He was the one that took our place, and the new covenant is in his blood. So it's by the perfect shedding of his blood, it's by the perfect breaking of his back that we have our salvation, and we have our healing, our deliverance. And we need to understand that that action of Jesus at the whipping post on the way to the cross, that is what gives us faith. That, that's what gives us access to faith, to believe. And as the Holy Spirit begins to work in us, he actually creates and continues to create faith and greater faith in us. And he's working out of us unbelief. And he's working out of us doubt so that he can work into us faith and greater faith. But the beauty of the Lord is even when we don't have great faith, faith just simply the size of a mustard seed. Faith the size of a mustard seed can speak to a mountain and say to that mountain to move. And so I love the Lord. If, if um, Maybe a month ago I was preaching on healing and I was talking about faith and healing. And one of the things I saw in the different stories is whether someone had great faith like the woman with the issue of blood or very little faith like the father with the demonized son. It didn't matter their type of faith. What mattered was their proximity to Jesus. Some had great faith, some had little faith, but when they took their great faith or their little faith and they touched Jesus with that faith, the miracle still happened. And so what's beautiful is wherever you are on this journey, he will respond to the faith that you have. He just simply asks that you have faith. I love how Bill... I don't know, it was last week or the week before, when he talks about Peter walking on the water. Peter probably had great faith when he first stepped off the faith, uh, off the boat, but the moment he got on the water, that faith began to diminish. But he had faith, and he walked on water. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for us, even in the realm of healing, if I can say this, to step out of the boat and to not be afraid to begin to pray and to ask the Lord to heal and to deliver and to take risks Randy Clark puts it like this. Many times faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And to see the miracles, signs, and wonders, we have to take risk. And we have a desire to please God. The scripture tells us it's impossible to please God without faith. The exercising of your faith is doing the things which would be impossible outside of God. The doctor says there's no healing or the cold's gonna take six days before it goes away. Uh, but we serve someone who can heal in a moment. Yeah. And we believe that by faith.
So he's the Passover lamb. And if you want to have salvation, you need to have faith in his blood poured out for you and that he will forgive you. And rightly so, if you want healing, you need to have understanding that he bore our sicknesses and diseases in his body. And he endured the stripes on his back for our healing. And if healing is prevalent in the old covenant and in the old testament, how much more in the new with a better covenant, with better promises, which do contain healing. Deliverance and healing was a part of the children's bread that Jesus spoke of when he was speaking to the Syrophoenician woman. When she's saying, even the dogs get the crumbs from your table. Just even the crumbs contained healing and deliverance for her. What did he say to her? That seemed such great faith. Have the worship team come up. As they're doing that, if you guys could um, hand out the elements of communion. We're going to take communion together. So with keeping in mind healing and the atonement, I want to declare over you guys an awareness there is healing at the table of the Lord. Why? Because what is he serving us at the table? He's serving his body. He's serving his blood. He's serving the bread. He's serving the wine. And listen, this communion, it is a prophetic act that Jesus himself established. When he's there with them in Luke 22 at the Last Supper, it's one of the last earthly ministries that he gives to his disciples before his death and resurrection. It was the table of the Lord. It was communion. It was his bread. The bread, it was the wine. And this was so important to him. And this is so important that we catch this in scripture. One of the last things he does on the way to the cross is the table. And then we see in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, these guys, they're inviting Jesus in, saying it's late, the hour's late, come in, dine with us. They think they're gonna serve Jesus a meal, but in turn, he begins to serve them a meal. And it says that at the breaking of the bread, as Jesus broke the bread, they, the whole road, they didn't know it was Jesus. As he's opening up the scriptures, they didn't know it was Jesus. As he came into their house, they didn't know it was Jesus. But it says the moment he broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they saw him and they knew him. And then he disappeared. They take the whole journey back to Jerusalem. They tell everyone. And we actually see in verse 36, as they're telling the guys in Jerusalem, you won't believe what happened. He was on the road with us. He, we brought him in. He broke the bread. And it says in verse 36, that they told them that at the breaking of the bread, our eyes were opened. The moment they told them that phrase, he appears to them in the room. He appears to them in the room. And they're freaking out. They're like, is that you? Now, they just got a testimony that it was him. They don't fully believe. They're still wrestling with this doubt and unbelief. And he says, and I love him, he doesn't rebuke. He doesn't, he just says, come, touch me. Because they thought it was a ghost. He said, come touch me. Touch his side. They touch his hands. Each one of them, they touch him. They know, okay, it's you. It's you. Say one last thing about the table. The table of the Lord, because what we see, the Last Supper, at least in Mark's version, he gives the Great Commission. tells them Mark 16 14 they're sitting at the table he gives them the go of the gospel I don't know if you know this but the most common term for communion 
in church history is the word mass. You know it to be a Catholic thing. I get it. And we're not going to get into all that. I preached a message on this like seven months ago. You can go back and listen to that. But this word mass come, came later on in Christianity when Christianity reached Rome and the meal became regularly celebrated. And at the time, they would serve communion in Latin because that was the language of the church. Most of the Christians would have spoke Greek, so they wouldn't have understood. But at the end of the communion meal, they would say this over the church. The early church would say this, go, you are sent out. And it's from the Latin phrase, ita missa est, where you get the word mass. And it literally means the meal that ends with the sending or a commissioning, a commissioning, the great commission. The church understood that at this table, salvation, at this table, there's healing. And at this table, you're sent out to go. Ephesians tells us that this table, this blood brings us near. If you take the Corinthian passage and you turn it on its head, what does it look like? He says in an unworthy manner. Well, what would a worthy manner look like? We're prophesying his return. We're receiving blessing. We are receiving strength health, longevity of life. We're being trained and chastened by the Lord. When we come and we discern the body rightly, we're walking in unity. And we're walking in divine order. We're walking in God's way. Saying don't come in an unworthy matter, meaning we can't live in unconfessed sin. We're to confess and enter into His grace. His grace is the enablement that allows us to live like Him, to look like Him. His freedom is not so we can do what we want to do. His freedom comes so that we can do what He's called us to do. And we have to understand that we cannot earn our way to the Lord, that all of this is by His blood, by His grace, which is released from His body. It's not our good works. It's not even your repentance that gives you access in the sense of paying the price. These are the things that we do in obedience, but it is his body broken. It is his blood shed. That's where the power lies in. Us repenting aligns us in obedience to him and allows us to enter into the power of his body and the power of his blood. It gives us access to the table, access to him. And Randy Clark said this, and I, I kind of like it. It's a little cute. It says, if you honor the prophet in the spirit of prophet, you receive the prophet's reward. But if you honor the body of Jesus as a cracker, you'll receive a cracker's reward. <laughs> it's funny, but it's so true. If we come casually to the table, if we treat this just as routine, we miss out on the power that exists in this moment. I do understand we're doing this by faith so mind-blowing the currency of the kingdom we enter into these realities by faith we don't have to be afraid to take communion for the sake of time I, I gotta end let me just read my last notes and then we'll close we see this invitation come to the table 
Jesus never said, you can't come unless you are worthy. He was the Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, when they came to the table, they didn't inspect themselves to see if they were worthy. They inspected the lamb. The call is never for us to be perfect, for if we were perfect, we would have no need for the lamb. The lamb must be perfect. All that is required of us is that we bring to the table our sin and let it be washed. What's required of us is we repent. We turn away from the sin and come to the table. So this is what happened to the Moravians. They were divided in 1722. They had a love feast and a communion service. And they brought their divisions before the blood and body of Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell. And then a hundred years of nonstop worship and prayer broke out, which only ended because they were all then sent out as missionaries. The Spirit of the Lord witnesses to the blood of Christ. I believe that communion was given to us by Jesus as one of the greatest ways to connect with him in the sense of tangibility, to abide in him. And again, in Luke 24, we see he appears back to them and says, touch my hands, touch my side, touch my wounds, touch me. And what if we shifted our whole idea of communion as a ritual to an invitation to encounter Jesus didn't simply say to do this every time you gather in remembrance of me if there wasn't a power he was going to release. Why don't we stand together? We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.
We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.